in your Bibles with me to the Old Testament today, and I would like for you to turn there to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, and I'd like you to turn to chapter number 57. Isaiah chapter number 57. I'm a little bit nervous this morning. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. Most of the time I am because I feel so inadequate, but I know the Lord is able. I believe that. My confidence is in Him. And I do say that with sincerity because I like to study and meditate and have my messages outlined and have them flow if I can. And sometimes, uh, you know, the Lord will give me a verse and I'll meditate on it and I'll pray over it and I'll write down this thought and that thought and this thought and sometimes I just can't outline it. Sometimes it's sort of like a Cajun gumbo. That is a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this. But when you put it all together, it sure does taste good. And... That's the way I feel this morning. I hope it will taste good. I hope and pray that that I can convey what I believe to be the burden of the Lord and the mind of the Lord. That's that's the main thing that I want to do in every service anyway. I mean, you can have a great outline and not have God on that outline. I would rather have, I would rather stumble through the, the message and the Lord be with me, honestly. But I don't want to have to stumble through the message. I'd rather just Him be with me and bless me and use me to help you today. But I want you to consider this thought here in Isaiah 57. Here we are approaching next week what we call a revival meeting. That that term is loosely used in America because really you cannot determine if a meeting is a revival until it after it's over. But we say that we're going to have a revival meeting, but in reality, we're just meeting together to hear the Word of God and hoping and praying that the Lord will stir our hearts, that we'll draw nigh to Him and He'll draw nigh to us, and the end result will be that we'll be revived. You know, the psalmist asked a question, Will thou not revive us again? Implying that people need to be revived again and again and again. And again, I know that's true with me. You know, I think about that word revive. Uh, Webster said in his 1828 dictionary, he said that revive or revival means to return to life, to recover life. The illustration of that is used in 1 Kings 17, where the widow's son passed away. Elijah came on the scene, prayed over him, and the Bible says the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came unto him again, and he revived. It also means to recover new life or vigor after you've been depressed or after you've been discouraged. It's a refreshing that brings back your joy, your hope, and your strength. Like when when uh, Jacob thought that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And he said, I'll go to my grave grieving over this. And for years, his children lied to him, thinking that his son would, had perished. And then when they came, came, years later, when his sons came to him and said, hey, listen, just want you to know Joseph is alive and well, and he's asking for you. Jacob said, I don't believe that stuff. And then some wagons showed up, and the Bible says this, it says, And when he saw the wagons which Joseph sent to carry him, the scripture says the spirit of Jacob revived. And so the word revival means really that God is going to restore some things back into your soul. The joy, the strength, uh, and the willingness to go forward and go back into battle again. And sometimes it's just day to day. So as, as I was thinking about what the psalmist said, he said, Wilt thou revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Because when you lose, when you lose that revival, when you lose that in your heart, you lose your song. You lose your joy. And the Bible says you lose your strength. 
Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. So if you've lost your song, if you've lost your strength, if you have been depressed and discouraged, the question is, will God revive you again? Do you believe that God is willing to revive you again? I think we can ask the prophet Isaiah that question. Now listen, when you open up the book of Isaiah, you are reading after one of the greatest prophets that ever walked on planet earth. Did you know, are you aware, that in the New Testament, the prophet Isaiah is quoted over 300 times. More than all the other Old Testament prophecies combined. Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. And the great prophet who lived during the days of King Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah and also had preachers around him in that day named Hosea and Micah and Nahum, you'll find that he wrote this word here. Look at this verse about this attitude about revival. Look in Isaiah 57 verse 15. And I think this is for the East River Baptist Church today. He says in verse 15, he says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. So we know he's referring to the almighty God. And he says, but look at this. He says, with him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. It appears to me that Isaiah is letting us know that God is more than willing to revive the heart's of his sons and his daughters. As a matter of fact, it is his desire to do so. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 16, he says, For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be wroth, for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. He said, I know that you need reviving. I know that it gets discouraging. I know that you get depressed. I know that you lose your strength. And he said, I'm for you, not against you. Wouldn't it be a blessing... If God did this for somebody here today, look in chapter 58 and look in verse number 11. Look at this. He says, and the Lord shall guide thee continually. Wouldn't that be awesome? If every step of the way you knew exactly what to do and you knew the perfect will of God for each single day. Wouldn't that be awesome? And he said, and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones. And thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. Wouldn't it be awesome if God were to do that for you inwardly? That he would revive your soul and your spirit, give you life again, make you fruitful again, make you a blessing to be around. And that when people get around you, you're like a fresh drink of water after they've been around you, or you've been like a fruit tree where somebody can leave with something that is a blessing to them? What what an awesome thing that would be. But yet many of us, we just do good to get from day to day without without losing our sanity. But I want you to notice in Isaiah 57 verse 15, there are two important thoughts here in this passage that that kept coming to me over and over and over again of how we could possibly put ourselves in a position to be revived. I don't know if our nation will ever experience revival again. I don't know that. I don't know if our church will ever experience revival again as an entire church. I don't know that. I hope for both. But I do know that there is revival for the individual. I do know that and I am convinced of that. Now, I think there are two things you have to keep in perspective. We get in trouble 
When we begin to bring God down to our level, or we bring ourselves up to His level. And you'll find here in verse 51 that God separates Himself from us because He is holy. He is eternal. He is righteous. He's God. He desires, as I mentioned last Sunday, our fellowship, and He's made a way through the Lord Jesus Christ for us to approach Him and have fellowship with Him. But I want you to notice here that there has to be a right perspective of God and there has to be a the right perspective of me. I've got to keep both of those. Here's God and here's me. And I start losing revival in my soul is when things start shifting like this. And I start trying to figure God out and think that He thinks like me and sees things the way I do or I see the way things He does. And if you're not careful, you'll, you'll eventually get it like this. To where you think that God is supposed to respond to everything that you want done. And you, you feel like that God owes you. That you're entitled to some things. And that's where a lot of discouragement comes. Because you're not getting what you expect out of others or out of life. And you'll notice here, turn with me, I'll show you a couple of illustrations. Look in Isaiah chapter 6, he gives us an example of this. Isaiah chapter number 6. Isaiah chapter number 6. What a great, what a great picture we have here of this uh, truth. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Now, children, seraphims are what we think are angelic-like creatures. The Bible does not refer to angels as having wings. They always look like men. But when it refers to cherubims or seraphims, it appears that they do have wings. And the Bible says here that these seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his faith, with twain he covered his feet, with twain he did fly. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried of the house was filled with smoke. And when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he saw himself in a proper perspective. And when you see God for who he is, And what He is, it helps keep everything else in life in perspective. And He said in verse 5, Then said I, Woe is me. Now these men in the charismatic movement who claim that they have had visions of God and His throne, and when they act as if they are on the same level with God and they're talking to Him like I'm talking to you, they are fools indeed. And the Bible says that when you see God and you see Him for who He is and you see Him for who you are, you're going to say, Woe is me. And verse 5 says, and He said, I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Now we're talking about a great prophet here. Man that loved God, tried to walk right and do right. And He says, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And he said, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he said, He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who shall go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Again, in perspective, when you see God as the Almighty, you see yourself as a servant of that God, of the true and the living God. And a servant's heart has a whole different demeanor than someone who thinks he's on level with God or someone who thinks he is above God. It is a servant's heart. Now you'll notice also, quickly look with me if you would in Isaiah 14. Look in Isaiah 14, you see another picture here. We believe this picture to be one of Satan. 
of Lucifer, of the devil. And according to the book of Ezekiel, uh, he was uh, uh, perfect in his beauty and, and his wisdom. He was a magnificent creature, I believe to be a cherubim or a seraphim of some sort. And one of the archangels possibly, but I do know that he had a great position. Seemingly, right there next to God. There, seeing all that was going on. Having the, the wonders and the beauty and the magnificence of God. And the Bible says in Isaiah 14, look at this. He says in verse number 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? <coughs> Excuse me. How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, and this is where we get in trouble, and this is where we lose our revival, this is where we lose our strength, this is where we lose our joy, this is where we lose that strength that God wants to give us, and that revival. It is that attitude of I will versus His will. And what I want versus what He wants. And he says, I will ascend into heaven. What an arrogant statement. Do you agree? And he said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. He said, I will be like the most high. And that is where we all lose That pride is when God begins to resist us. And that's when we lose our strength and our fellowship and our joy. And the Bible says, and we're going to give you some self-test here in just a moment. Kind of help us check ourselves with this. You say, Brother Roger, I'm not like the devil. Well, you know, I don't think anybody wants to be like him or think that they're him. But to say we're never like him... I think sometimes we underestimate how full of pride that we really are and how arrogant that we become, how presumptuous we are, and how sometimes we have this attitude of entitlement. And the Bible says here, and this is what the Lord, and He said, I will ascend. But in verse 15 says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell the sides of the pit. And He said, He shall be. didn't say He is. Satan, Lucifer, is not in hell today. He's not ruling over hell. He's not placing anybody in hell. He doesn't have that authority. It is a place that's been prepared for him and for his angels. And that's where he is going. But the Bible says one day we will get to heaven. God will show us and say, you see that right down, that little speck way down right in there, way down there. You see that right there? That's him. Mr. Almighty, that's him right there. Mr. Arrogant, that's him right there. Mr. Full of Pride, that's that little dot way down there in the bottom of hell. Look in verse 16, he said, They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee. That means they got to squint their eyes to see him. Saying, Is this the man that made the earth tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof and opened up the house of his prisoners? Is that him? Is that who we've been hearing about? Is that Him? And I'm here to tell you that that this is the wrong perspective of God when you get the attitude that it's your will, not His will. And listen, you tell me where contention comes from. The Bible says that contention cometh only by pride. We lose our place. All right, if you'll go with me now to Isaiah chapter 40. So bear with me. I'm laying a foundation here. Bear with me. Be patient with me. Isaiah chapter 40. This is where Isaiah is declaring how great our God is. Children, if you read your Bibles on a regular basis, and I hope that you do, let me encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 40 often. You'll find that it describes some things about how great God truly is. And the Bible says here, for example, look in verse number 12. Isaiah 40, verse 12. He says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? If you were to take the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Mediterranean, 
and the Indian Ocean, and you took all the rivers that you could name, the Bible says you could you could fit them right there in the hollow of God's hand. That's how huge and large and powerful God is. <clears throat> and he says he meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. And he said, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord at been his counselor hath taught him? Have any of you given counsel to God? Has he ever asked you what to do? When he arose this morning, or when you arose this morning, did you get a text from God and said, I'm not sure about what to do today in Iran and Iraq. Would you send me your counsel that I might know what to do? Did you get a phone call this morning and said, listen, they have a service at East River, and I, I kind of would like to know what you think I should do in the service today with Brother So-and-so. Not sure how to, how to, how to deal with him. Could you give me some counsel? Did, did you hear from that from God? Did he ask you that? Did God uh, get up this morning wringing his hands and say, what am I going to do about global warming? What am I going to do about that? He said, oh yeah, I made a promise. I ain't. There is going to be global warming. I'm going to burn this place up. I forgot about that. No, God didn't ask you for counsel, nor me. But I have found myself in prayer talking to God about how I think He ought to deal with the situation. Verse 14. With whom took he counsel? Who instructed him? Who taught him in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? There's absolutely nothing God does not know. And look at this. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. Nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. Now, that's one thing. But how about if you're less than nothing? If you're less than zero, what are you? You're a negative number, aren't you? And he says, and they counted him less than nothing. And are, he says, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. He said in verse 18, to whom will you then liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? And this is what makes God angry when men take wood and gold and silver and make images out of creatures or what they think God to be like and to worship them as if God could be compared to any of those things. You'll notice the Bible says this. He goes on and says, Verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. The inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. So when you think yourself to be something, understand from God's perspective, you're like a little grasshopper. The next time you walk out upon an anthill, Compare yourself as God looks down from heaven and He sees that little ant down there on that anthill. When you think yourself to be something, when you're nothing. He says, look at this. He said, that stretcheth out the, out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. That bring the princes to nothing and maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. You'll notice down in verse number 25 again, be patient with me please. It says, to whom then will you liken me or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things that bringeth out their hosts by number. And there is referring to creation, the stars, the moon, and the sun. And God asks you, as a matter of fact, He challenges you. To observe creation. To observe the stars. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of His might. My understanding is that just in the galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, there are over a hundred billion stars. We don't know how many millions and millions of of, uh, galaxies that there really are. 
And the scripture says that God has a name for every star. And he says, for the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. And he says in verse 27, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Do you think there's anything in our hearts? Now listen, seriously. This is about revival. Do you think there's anything, anything that's going on inside of our hearts and minds and our imagination and our lives that God does not see? That God is not aware of? That God does not know about? Do you think that God knows our attitude our thoughts, our imaginations, our fears. Do you think that God really knows us? I believe that He does know everything about you. Now watch what He says in verse 28. Has thou not known, has thou not heard that the everlasting God, the one who inhabits eternity, that, that blows my mind. God doesn't dwell in time like you and I. Time is for man. God measures us with time. He said, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. Do you understand that there is no searching of his understanding? Do you understand that? He giveth power to the faint. This is what we're looking for. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. Or fall, he said, but look at this in verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord, who are they? That's the contrite in spirit. Those are the humble in spirit. They wait upon the Lord. And that means to hope with confidence and expectation. Our hearts are fixed upon Him and our mind is stayed upon Him. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. And they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk. And not faint. When you bring God down to your level. Then you will find yourself to be. Moving away from God. And losing your joy and your strength. Listen I don't have to understand God. To believe in God. I don't have to comprehend Him. To be able to trust Him. I am the creation. He is the creator. And he is the potter, and I am the clay, and I understand my place. And I do my very best to stay in my place. So that God can revive me. So that God can encourage me. So the Lord can do some things for me. Now go back to our text real quick, if you would. And let's look at this, uh, some words that are repeated here in our passage. In Isaiah 57 and verse 15. There are two terms used here. Repeatedly, a contrite spirit and an humble spirit. A contrite spirit and a, and a, and a humble spirit. Alright, let's look at that. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. The Bible says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So this thing that's coming up, what we will call revival, much of that is going to be determined by my attitude and my heart. It appears to me that God is willing to draw nigh to me if I am willing to draw nigh to Him. But God has some requirements. Just a couple of them. He said, I'd like to see in you a contrite spirit. I would like to see in you a humble spirit. What is that? Well, a contrite spirit is this. It is someone who has been deeply affected with grief, with sorrow, or with sadness, or heaviness, knowing that they have offended a holy and a righteous God. And who makes no effort to make excuses for their choices and their behavior, and will not blame others for where they are. It is a contrite spirit. There is some contrition that takes place. And that contrite spirit, that's being brokenhearted over one's personal failure and weakness before God. It is an acute awareness 
of the weakness and the wickedness of your own flesh and your own mind and your own heart. Do you understand? It is an awareness. And when you fail the Lord, you don't take it lightly. And when you grieve Him, and when you sin against Him, you recognize it, you acknowledge it, and you confess it before God. And you ask the Lord to forgive you through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you don't walk about as if you haven't done anything wrong. Or that there's nothing wrong with you. You remember the Pharisee and publican? Both of them went before Jesus and said, I'm going to give you a story. It's a parable. He said, but let me tell you something. He said, these two guys went up to the temple to pray. He said, the Pharisee went in and he trusted in himself that he was righteous. And he began to talk about the Lord. I, Lord, listen, I, I, I tithe. I fast. You know, I do all the other things. By the way, I'm not like this guy over here. But the Bible says that that um, publican would not so much as lift up his head toward heaven. But he asked God to be merciful unto him, being a sinner. And what you have, there's a contrast between self-righteousness and arrogance and presumption and a contrite and a humble spirit. The Scripture says, Jesus said that when people are forgiven much, He said they love much. In other words, there is a sense about us that we know we're unworthy. And Christ has made us worthy. There is a contrition about us. Not an arrogance. Not a self-righteousness. Now, I don't walk around feeling, feeling bad all the time because knowing that, because I have some confidence that God has forgiven me in Christ Jesus. And I thank Him for that. But let's talk about that humble spirit. That means to be lowly as opposed to being high and lofty. It means being modest in one's self-appraisal. It's what you think about yourself. Boy, God knows what you think about yourself. You ever heard that phrase in the Bible, being high-minded? Have you heard that phrase in the Bible about, you know, he's full of himself? Or we use that term, he's full of himself? When we think ourselves to be something, when we're nothing, this this, this humble spirit... What is that? It's being meek. It's being submissive to authority. It is the absence of pride. The absence of stubbornness. The absence of arrogance. And a sense of entitlement. The absence of a sense of entitlement. Now listen, I've been in pastor long enough to recognize there are people who can look at you and smile and with a gentle spirit say some things to you uh, in their response, you give them an order. You tell them what you want them to do. You tell them what they need to do. You give them counsel. You tell them what the Bible says. And they look at you with a sweet spirit. And they'll say something, but they go about and they do as they please. They do as they please. You've got some over here that'll blow up. They'll blow a gasket. And they'll get mad. And you can see their rebellion. Over here is this. It doesn't seem like rebellion because it's so sweet. But when you don't do what you're told, you're just as guilty when you do it like that as you do it over here. When you go about and you're going to do your own thing rather than doing what God would have you to do. So you equate rebellion with emotion and God equates it with behavior and whether or not you're going to actually do what you're told or not and being submissive to the will of God. I want you to think about something now. Micah said, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, to, but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God. God wants you and I to walk humbly. Now, I'll tell you what. You study the Scriptures, or you ask people, what do you think is a humble person? You'll find that you, it, it's not easy to define. Not that easy sometimes to even describe. I asked Brother Kenneth about what he, Brother Kenneth Ailes, I said, said, describe to me what you think is a humble person. He said, you know, it's easier for me to recognize one than it is to me to to tell you. 
He said, I can get around somebody and I can tell whether or not they're proud or whether or not they're humble just by their attitude and their spirit and how they handle themselves. Would you agree with that? And I think that yet the Bible says if we're to walk humbly, that we need to know what is humility in the eyes of God. What does that really mean? Like, for example, a woman of great price in the sight of God. The Bible says that it, she has a meek and a quiet spirit. A meek and a quiet spirit. And, and which in the sight of God is of a great price. Of great price. Now, again, we're talking here about a couple of examples of humility. Number one would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Agreed? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that He that He made Himself of no reputation, took upon Himself the form of a, a servant. And He became obedient even unto the death of the cross. And yet you find the Lord Jesus. Do you think Jesus was arrogant when He made the statement to people? When He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly. That's what he said. I am meek and lowly. Because he was able to identify what it was and follow the path of meekness and lowliness. He said, I need you to learn of me. The Bible says that really, when you come right down to it, humility is you being willing to submit yourself to the will of God. Can you do that? In all areas of your life, can you submit yourself to the will of God? I'm going to show you a verse of Scripture real quick. and Look with me to Acts chapter 20, and I'm almost done. I want to show you something here, and I pray God will help you with this. Look at Acts 20. Another great example would be the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20. I believe it is Acts 20 that I want. Yes, there it is. And I thought about all kinds of illustrations and situations. and They're numerous, but I pray the Lord will help you with these right here. I want you to look in Acts chapter 20. Look in verse 19. What if you had to write a... What if you had to write a letter to somebody and said, you know, I, I've been serving the Lord. What if, what if we got a letter from Brother Showers next week and he said, I just want East River to know that I've been serving the Lord with all humility. How does that sound? What? Does that sound prideful? Well, I ask you this. Is Paul being prideful when he says this right here? In verse 19 he says, serving the Lord with all humility of mind. And with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. Sometimes we think that degrading ourselves or saying things about ourselves that we really and truly don't believe is really just feigned humility. It's really not humility in itself. And you'll find that he says that I've been serving the Lord with all humility of mind with many tears and temptations. So, is it possible for you to be able to discern whether or not you are prideful or humble? Is it possible? Now, I'll tell you one thing you don't do. You don't walk around proud of your humility. Amen? You can't do that. But I'll tell you one thing that's in there in verse 19, the first word. Are you a servant? You say, no, nobody's going to tell me what to do. Uh, there you go. There you go. You've already crossed yourself off the list. You know what God rewards the humble people with? He gives them grace for the place of life that they're in at the moment. And I don't know what place you're in. I don't know what you're going through, but God does. But when a man recognizes who God is and what he is, and he humbles himself before God, and he has a contract spirit before the Lord, 
God gives that man or that woman grace for the moment, grace for that place. He giveth grace to the humble. Not only that, book of Proverbs says, He gives to the humble wisdom. Not only to go through it, but sometimes to know what to do while you're in that situation. Not only that, but He will give you a heart of gladness. You remember that scripture where David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Are you a humble person? Let me ask you this. What if some, the word, the element of praise will test your humility? If God is being praised, do you rejoice? What about if there's another person around you that's being praised and you're not? Hmm? Maybe it's their time to be praised. The Bible says when a man humbles himself, God at some point will lift him up. And if God chooses that day to honor that man, can you rejoice or are you full of envy and jealousy? Your mom and dad cannot uh, praise every child every single day or it means nothing. But when a child does something and progresses and that's their day to be praised, can you rejoice with your brother or your sister or are you envious because you didn't get any attention that day? I've watched people even at birthday parties. It can be that person's birthday, but that person wants, that another individual wants to be the eye of the storm. Do you understand how foolish we are? And here's what he said in verse 19. Am I willing to serve, not only serve, but serve the Lord? Now why does he say serve the Lord? Why does he say that? He said serving the Lord. Because you cannot serve the Lord and be a servant to everybody else. He said, well, Brother Roger, you said if I'm a servant to the Lord, I'll serve others. That is true. But you won't be able to serve everybody. You know why? Because there's going to be people who will, in, who will try to impose their will on you who are not interested in serving God. There are heretics who will impose upon you their beliefs. I don't have to submit myself to you when you're not following the Lord. I'm not a rebel and full of pride if I don't walk with you or agree with you or submit myself to you when you're going contrary to the truth. Paul said in the book of Galatians to those legalists, he said, I'm not going to submit myself to you not for an hour. He said, I'm not going to do it. Now, what was it being arrogant? That wasn't being prideful. You see, you think being humble means that you do everything everybody wants done. You're going to go crazy if you do that. You better line yourself up with serving the Lord. And if those people that you're working with and walking with are wanting to serve God, man, go with them, stay with them, and stay after it. You can't please everybody. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations. And that many tears and temptations means there's going to be some times in your life that you are going to have to trust God when you don't understand all that's going on. Because I promise you, you don't know all that's going on. How about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. You talk about a person that's humble. It's someone who understands and is slow to make judgment on circumstantial evidence in other people's lives. You know what some of you do? You've always got to comment and cast judgment upon circumstances in people's lives when you don't have all the facts. When you don't really know that person. God inhabits eternity. You don't. And I don't. You're assuming. And and you're prideful about those things. Let me... Let me, let me close with this illustration. Now, it's a little bit, it's a, it's a little bit longer than the average illustration. I'm going to do some reading here, but I need you to, especially you children, listen to this teenagers. Listen carefully to me. This is a story written by, it's an illustration used by Max Licato in a book he wrote called In the Eye of the Storm. And he said this. He said, once there was an old man who lived in a tiny village. Although poor, he was envied by all. 
for he owned a beautiful white horse. Even the king coveted his treasure. A horse like this had never been seen before. Such was its splendor, its majesty, its strength. People offered fabulous prizes for the steed, but the old man always refused. The horse is not a horse to me. He would tell them, how could you sell a friend? He's a friend, not a possession. How could you sell a friend? The man was poor and the temptation was great, but he never sold the horse. One morning, he found that the horse was not in the stable. All the village came to see him and said, You old fool, they scoffed. We told you that someone would steal your horse. We warned you that you'd be robbed. You're so poor. How, how could you ever hope to protect such a valuable animal? It would have been better to have sold him. You should have gotten whatever price you wanted. No, no amount would, would have been too high. Now the horse is gone and you've been cursed with misfortune. The old man responded, Don't speak too quickly. Say only that the horse is not in the stable. This is all we know. The rest is judgment. If I've been cursed or not, how can you know? How can you judge? The people contested. Don't make us out to be fools. We may not be philosophers, but great philosophy is not needed here. The simple fact that your horse is gone is a curse. The old man spake again. All I know is the stable is empty. The horse is gone. The rest I don't know. Whether it be a curse or a blessing, I cannot say. All we can see is a fragment. Who can say what will come next? The village people laughed. They thought that the man was crazy. They had always thought he was a fool. If he wasn't, he would have sold the horse and lived off the money. But instead he was a poor woodcutter, an old man still cutting firewood, dragging it out of the forest and selling it. He lived hand to mouth in the misery of poverty. Now he had proven that he was indeed a fool. After 15 days, the horse returned. He hadn't been stolen. He had run away into the forest. Not only had he returned, he had brought a dozen wild horses back with him. Once again, the village gathered together around the woodcutter and spoke, Oh man, you were right and we were wrong. What we thought was a curse was a blessing. Please forgive us. The man responded once again, You go too far. Say only that the horse is back. State only that a dozen horses return with him, but don't judge. How do you know if this is a blessing or not? You see only a fragment. Unless you know the whole story, how can you judge? You read only one page of a book. Can you judge the whole book? You read only one word of a phrase. Can you understand the entire phrase? Life is so vast, yet you judge all of life with one page or one word. All you have is a fragment. Don't say that this is a blessing. No one knows. I am content with what I know. I am not perturbed by what I don't know. Maybe the old man is right, they said one to another, so they said little. But down deep, they knew he was wrong. They knew it was a blessing. Twelve wild horses returned with one horse. With a little bit of work, the animals could be broken, trained, and sold for much money. The old man had a son, an only son. The young man began to break the wild horses. After a few days, he fell from one of the horses and broke both of his legs. Once again, the villagers gathered around the old man and cast their judgments. You were right, they said. You proved you were right. The dozen horses were not a blessing. They were a curse. Your only son has broken his legs, and now in your old age, you have no one to help you. Now you are poorer than ever. The old man spake again and said, you people are obsessed with judging. Don't go so far. Say only that my son broke his legs. Who knows if it is a blessing or a curse? Who knows? No one knows. We only have a fragment. Life comes in fragments. It so happened that a few weeks later, the country engaged in war against a neighboring country. All the young men of the village were required to join the army. Only the son of the old man was excluded because he was injured. Once again, the people gathered around the old man crying and screaming because their sons had been taken. There was little chance they would return. The enemy was strong. The war would be a losing struggle. They would never see their sons again. You were right, old man, they wept. God knows you were right. This proves it. Your son's accident was a blessing. His legs may be broken, but at least he's with you. Our sons are gone forever. The old man spoke again. It is impossible to talk with you. You always draw conclusions. No one knows. Say only this. Your sons had to go to war and mine did not. No one knows if it's a blessing or a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. 
life comes in fragments. Humble people are slow about jumping to conclusions, insinuations, accusations, and judgments upon other people. We size people up, and even in our own lives, we see things right here. We don't see the whole video. We see a snapshot. Instead of trusting God and throwing ourselves upon Him, that He does know what's going on. If we do not do that, we will find little comfort, little joy, little strength. Because we assume upon ourselves that we have got to figure and explain these things out. Sometimes you ask me counsel and I tell you, I've got to think about that before I respond. Be leery and wary of someone who always has a quick and fast answer to your problems. We do not know. But I know this. I know that God wants us to have revival. And I know He wants to revive me and you. And I know that if I will be contrite before Him, and if I will humble myself before Him, that God will revive my soul, renew my strength, return my gladness, give me grace for the moment that I need it. And then let me walk in that direction. The Bible says, clothe yourself with humility. Do you know... I realize that some people are disabled and have to be clothed with somebody else, by others. But we're not talking about that, and God wasn't either. He's talking about when you got up this morning, most of you got yourselves ready. You clothed yourself. It was a choice. Humility is a choice. Judging sin in my life is a choice. God, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. I've grieved you. I'm sorry. I don't want to be like this. Please forgive me. It's that attitude God's looking for. It's that attitude of humility that, Lord, I need you. And, God, I'm tired of judging others instead of judging myself. God, help me to trust you in this fragment of life that I can see right now. Let's stand together, please. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. Again. The invitation is to you that maybe God has spoken to your heart about something. I pray it in my heart for you and I shall pray for you and for my own self. I pray God will help you this morning. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, I've tried to deliver the message. I pray you'd help me to stay in my place. And I pray, Lord, that I would always have you in your place. High and lifted up. My Lord and my God, of whom I serve. Lord, I pray you'd bless this church and these individuals this morning in Jesus' name. With our heads bowed. I pray you'd obey the Holy Ghost. If you need to come this morning, maybe you need to come and get saved. Maybe you need to come and just say, Lord, please forgive me. Help me, Lord, to draw nigh to you. Help me, dear God. Help me, dear God.